coast a long chapter uh, from this book, which will obviously never be done, um, um, uh, on the website. Um, it, it's, it, I, I, in this case, I particularly urge you to read it before the class because it's too long to cover the whole thing in any, in any reasonable detail in the class itself. And I take it, I'll sort of make introductory remarks about it and Tim can yell at me and, and people can ask questions and so on and so forth. But it would be particularly good to, to read the paper in advance in, in this case. So I'll try to post it later today or, or tomorrow or, or something like that. And I don't know if Tim has something. Yeah, let me actually, let me just... Hi there. Hey, how are you, Tim? So Nothing you, for me. Jet lag. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I see where people come from. So we want to hand it over to you. Let me let, let me just you can you can uh, gather your thoughts and stuff. <laughs> gather. I should have brought the whip. <laughs> uh, uh, let me let me just just say a few words, finishing up or 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 indicating the situation as I understand it, and maybe maybe these will be some of the issues, and even when we get to Sean, some of the issues. Um, so let me just reco I want, let me recapitulate some stuff I said last time, and then point to some um, remaining questions about the nature of statistical explanation, of what requires a statistical explanation. Um, so the picture was, suppose, uh, at any given at any given time, right? Not just uh, not just the initial time or anything like that. Suppose at any given time t uh, for one reason or another we think there's some macro state of the universe. And as we've been, you know, repeating from day one, nothing is logically entailed, essentially nothing, very little, is logically entailed from the obtaining of this macro state at T and the fundamental laws of microdynamics. That entails very, very little about what the macro state or anything will be at any other time. Yes. I mean, you know, it'll tell a little bit, maybe by conservation of energy or conservation of angular momentum or something. You know, you could actually say just from that. But the whole point from the beginning is very, very little follows. Nonetheless, what I tried to, to uh, indicate last time was that you've got all these possible microstates in here as a purely mathematical matter. You can set up a series of definitions which require only a distinction for a certain relevant collection of subsets of these microconditions, a distinction into really big sets and really little sets. And then the claim was, if you give me that, and that's really all I need, then I can just define what counts as typical behavior relative to this macro state, which means behavior that the set of the set of microstates that give rise to that behavior is big, right? So, 
um, you know, we might have this kind of picture that relative to this measure of almost all, but it's not going to be strictly all, almost all of these microstates evolve to some later macro state, for example, or whatever, it doesn't have to be a macro state, any behavior that's true of all of them, that's typical, and then there'll be some outliers, there'll be some weird ones that do strange things, but as long as that set is sufficiently small relative to this understanding of big and small, the picture was we feel justified in ignoring it or justified in saying if we see the typical behavior, this constitutes a perfectly adequate explanation of it. Of course, you might ask for further, you, you might ask, well, gee, but is there a further explanation for the holding of the macro state, right? And this is like the past hypothesis, and that's something that's a very good question, but an orthogonal one, we're leaving aside for the moment. We're just granting the macro state, mm -hmm. and we're saying, that seems to constitute uh, uh, an explanation. Now, what if something is not typical? Okay, what's the situation? So that the, the, my claim from the beginning has been showing that something's typical in this sense constitutes a perfectly adequate statistical explanation of it. And 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 relieves us of. I, I mean, we you know we talked. David and I have argued back and forth about whether uh, it's just psychological relief or the psychological relief is an indication of something you might call logical or explanatory or scientific or I don't know what words to use. What if, in fact, what happens is atypical, is not typical? Now, there are two observations to make. One observation is, of course, by the definition I just gave you, atypical stuff happens all the time. That we should be here in this room and I should be saying words like this is atypical relative to, certainly relative to the macro state of the universe 100 million years ago, right? You know, overwhelmingly most of the possible micro states consistent with what was going on 100 million years ago won't lead to this class today in any number of ways that I could describe macroscopically, right? I could just give you a macroscopic description of what David looks like. It would be enough, right? I mean, just think of the, think of how chaos theory feeds into it, just, just through the weather and everything else through all those years, right? Take the actual microstate 100 million years ago and move it any amount in any direction and you're going to end up not with us here today. Okay? Well, what is that? So, so that... We have that problem, right? So atypical things that actually occur to the future, right? So let's just, so there's atypical things, for example, in the future that happen all the time. I could point out a million of them. Does that mean, in an appropriate sense, that they're not explained, that, that we ought to be puzzled about them in a certain way, right? And the, the normal reaction to this is these are the kinds of things about which the right attitude to take is, yeah, they just happen, right? I mean, there's going to be a micro story about how they happen, but the micro story about how we all came to be here and a guy who looks like David came to be here and how these words are coming out of my mouth in, at, at that level of detail that that's atypical, 
that micro story will just refer to other things that are just as atypical, that are just as, as it were, nothing, nothing, to, nothing would have led you, nothing in physics itself would have led you to expect exactly that. Right? Let's put it that way. Right? And nothing that arises from the practice of physics, the sorts of facts that you appeal to in the practice of physics would have led you to expect exactly that, it's unless you go back and go down to the micro level earlier, and then you'd say, but why should I have expected exactly this micro state that led to it? And you're going to be stuck in the same situation. That micro state, nothing, no, certainly not typical <laughs> that it be exactly that kind of micro state. Now, in some, here you have to make a distinction. And I, I don't see that there's any way out of it. I certainly have to make it. I don't see how anybody can avoid making it. Between the sorts of observed behaviors that we think require an explanation and those, this kind of explanation, and those that just don't. Right? Those for which the correct attitude is to say, that was just an accident. That was one of the contingencies of life. And it, of course, followed from earlier contingencies of life, and it will give rise to later contingencies of life. But the kind of explanation that we have of, say, why ice cubes melt, which is what we were looking for, or why the laws of thermodynamics hold, uh, and there's a question of how far that goes, that's just unavailable. Okay? Now, you could imagine someone disputing that. You could, I, I, don't, I don't quite know how a physicist disputes it. What, Tim, could you? Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm, I think I just missed the grammar. Yeah. In, insofar as ice cubes melting, that's, that's not the, the explanation that's unavailable. No, no, that's right. Yeah. That, oh, the, okay. good, good, good. the behavior of ice cubes melting yeah. is the kind of yeah, thing yeah. that yeah, we, yeah. we we don't want to, at the end of the day say that was just an accident, yeah. right? Instead of saying though that our also being all of us being here right. is an accident right. waiting to happen. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, and and, that, and and if somebody, you know, it, 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 if you're a physicist, you ought to stay up late at night worrying about why ice cubes melt, but not in the same way worrying about why we, we all happen to be here or these kinds of things I could explain. Okay? Now, I don't know how to make that. As I said, someone could dispute that. The only person I know who really would dispute it would say your Leibniz, who would say, no, no, I really have an explanation for why all the details why we're here, why these words are coming out of my mouth, because that's part of what makes it the best of all possible worlds, and the explanation for why this is happening rather than that is that God chose it, and the only reasonable consideration God could use in choosing to create it was that it be the best of all possible worlds, and in fact, you know, at least from the level of the mind of God, if not ours, there is an explanation, a sort of satisfying explanation. You think there are explanations in languages other than physics of why we're all here, right? I don't think there's an explanation in any language that will explain the the level of detail that I was suggesting, right? So what what, what about so initial you know that just these are the, these were the initial conditions of the universe? These right. are the deterministic laws. Right. I think right, and I think what happens in that case is that if you were puzzled, if there was a certain kind of puzzlement you might have had, that if you had it the nature of those initial conditions you appeal to will just, you, the, the puzzlement will recur, right? If I then say, but why those initial conditions rather than some others, and you say, well, it, 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 that's just what they were. So you're talking about not just explaining something, but the total elimination of puzzlement. 
I'm a, yeah, I mean, I don't know the total. The, the elimination of a certain kind of puzzlement. But I'm having a hard time. I'm sorry. When I explain something using the initial conditions, we usually say, okay, well, I've explained that, but now explain the initial conditions. Well, we don't normally say, well, you didn't explain the thing I asked for the explanation of in the first place because you didn't explain the initial conditions. I, I think in some cases we do, in some cases we don't. And I think that, of course, if you tell me the causal story of how we came to be here um, in terms of this, this micro-condition, You've done something, um, but but there's also something you, you know. I, I mean, something, I, I'll, something I'll, explanatory, right? You, you've done something, yeah, some kind of explanation. I, it's not a statistical explanation. I mean, let me put it this way, right? Maybe this will make it clear. I think there is a species of statistical explanation, and more or less what we've been focusing on is trying to understand what could that be, right? And whatever, whatever it is that you just gave me is not that. And the thing we're looking for is the kind of thing that explains why ice melts. There is one version of Roger, one view Roger Penrose once considered, which might answer provide what you're asking for. And that was what he called strong determinism, so that you have as compelling reasons as you have for the law right. for the initial condition. Right. Which, is, which will be right. unique. So this would be, this would be the physicist's version of Leibniz, right? Yeah, that, there, yeah. that there is some principle some compelling physical principle, now not a compelling moral principle, right? A compelling physical principle that actually picks out a unique initial state. And then then I think you would have really accomplished something quite extraordinary. Right? So what about statistical explanations of um, weather, the weather? Yeah. Here was the clouds, the temperature, right. blah, 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 yesterday. Right. That may explain why it is that storms formed in a certain... Right. So, for, so now this is just to bring you up to date from last time. It, it's perfectly possible from what I said that the kind of thing you just described, that at least relative to, I don't know, a certain size planet, that these sorts of clouds mm -hmm. are often followed by, or with certain frequency followed by uh, rain. That could be typical. Right? That could be typical behavior. What I did when I was talking about the, the, the fine details of our meeting in this room, right? there might be an explanation of why people meet in rooms around institutions. You know. No, but Tim, the same thing is true. I, I mean, I don't think this is actually disputing what you want yes. to say, but I think maybe you said it in a slightly confusing way. Maybe. Surely, surely... Uh, uh, surely, given the the uh, macro state of the world a week ago, it is typical that that we're that 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 more or less this collection of people is going to be in this room today. Right. And okay. Right. So, and that that's correct. So, right. if I only went back a week, right. Yes. Right. 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 Uh, everybody sees that, right? right? If I go back a week, so it's not. So, and this is what relative to that macro state, it's not that you typical. can't imagine explanations of us being here today. It's that you can't imagine explanations whose, whose explanations are the initial macro state of the universe. Well, but, right. but not even the initial macro. I mean, it is important. Yeah, I, I, you I, don't you have to go mean, back anywhere near that that's far. Right, that's right. right. But, to, 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 but you to, can to sure that go back two weeks. Uh, yeah, for us being gathered here, you can go back yeah, two weeks. Yeah, for more this color. And for you sitting in that position. No, I, I, I doubt that. No, no, no. I mean, at this end of the table as opposed to... Oh, as opposed to... Okay, right. You're a teacher. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that I'm saying... Look, but this is okay. I mean, we're getting a set... That's fine. Right. We agree. Right. So everybody sees it. But, but if you ask me this particular sequence of words, 
yeah. coming out of my mouth right. ain't going to, it's right. not going to go that right. way. Right. Right. So we're, we're exactly sorting yeah, that's right. into the things there's that we there's think There's a are, continuum here. Right. Yeah, there's right. a continuum, but right. you, you, you know, and right. you better not think that every detail requires this kind of explanation. Right. Okay. Right. Now, the problem we had before, of course, was that, and so this is just the last thing I want to say. The problem we had before, of course, was that if we look at the, so to the, to the past, now we're going to talk about the direction of time. So past is that way. That, of course, the, the, you can think of the reversibility objection as being the observation that to the past typical behavior is just nothing like what we think actually occurred. Okay, so what actually occurred is atypical, but not the kind of atypicality that I was saying here, the ones where you just shrug them off and say, well, okay, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, that too much, of, too, too much of the actual history of the universe and the way we think it happened is atypical to do that, okay? And the question is, where does that leave us? And the, the, the answer I'm suggesting is this. Well, that leaves us with an explanatory gap or, an, or, or a felt explanatory need. Uh, we know one way to solve that is to go even further back in time and find some other macro state such that everything we think did happen now becomes typical when I conditionalize relative to that. Okay? And that seems, I think everybody thinks that's okay. Does everybody feel like that's more or less okay? I mean, in, in other words, if someone said, yeah, you know, you, if, if you went through this sequence, you say, well, gee, a thousand years ago it was like this, and so we should expect that, but, but, but typically it would have come a different way. We don't think that happened. Okay, I'm going to go back further in time to find this thing. And everybody thinks this, as long as, again, there's a question of how I explain this, this constraint at T minus. But if I'm somehow happy about that, the rest of the gadget works perfectly well. Yes? The only point I want to make now, and I, 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 I think it's deep, I'm not sure, and I think this will lose here, is just notice we would not have at all the same reaction if something atypical were happening on this side. And I said, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to explain this atypical thing on this side by saying at some future time, T plus, here's the macro state. Right? That a million years in the future, here's a very special macro state. And relative to that, this thing, which is, well, I'll put it down here, right? This thing, which is atypical, now becomes typical, as it were. What we would say is that's an unacceptable teleological explanation. That physicists just aren't allowed to do that. Larry Shulman did that. That's true. Okay. So you, you know, if, if, I mean, you just have to stop and say, if all of a sudden, you know, you read, you open up the Science Times yesterday, and if someone says, look, I now have an explanation of blah, 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 and they refer to some state last week, or a hundred years ago, or a million years ago, or a billion years ago, and you understand how this stuff goes, you're, you're happy. And if you open it up and someone said, I'm going to explain something now, and they refer to some state in two weeks, or a hundred years, or four hundred years, 
you think something has gone seriously wrong. But Tim, I mean, you're using this now as part of a, uh, an argument for why I take the past-future distinction as more basic. I'm, I'm not using it as an argument for anything. I'm just pointing. I'm pointing out where it's coming. Uh, okay, okay. okay, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> and and um, well, so okay. So as long as you no, make no, it but, clear, but let's put it in a reverse way. It's not clear that that the distinction between putting it there and putting it there is going to be available apart from there being a a Good. more metaphysically fundamental past-future distinction. Available in the sense that you could be in an epistemic state to know this. Or what, I'm not sure you mean by no, no, be no, no, available. No, 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 no. In the, in the, suppose somebody were to say, okay, that, that is, you know, suppose somebody were to say, suppose somebody were to say something like this, um, um, which seems to me in the neighborhood of the right thing to say. Uh, putting it here is just the same thing as putting it here. Okay. Um, it's just that in that case, you'd be calling this direction the path, and you'd be no, no, calling... Right now, I'm imagining someone doing it both ways. Oh, oh, oh. Well, that's... But then... Oh, I see. That's I said. You, you open up the oh, papers. Oh, 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 you okay. open up the papers. I understand what you were saying. Right? Okay. And, okay. of course, we have all these things that we've done this way, but now a guy says, okay, I'm just going to play the same game, right. but I'm just going to happen to put this extra constraint to the future. Right. Suppose it really worked out. Suppose that there was right. an extra constraint to the future. Somebody put it down there. They said, this is a proposal. Yeah. And it turns out that it's a, an amazingly accurate way of making predictions about the future. Yes. Now, we'd be really puzzled yes. we, um, by it. We've grown very, very used to things working in just one direction, not in both. Um, but I don't see that there's a metaphysical ruling it out. I, I didn't say there's a metaphysical ruling it out. I didn't say that you said there was a metaphysical ruling. <laughs> <laughs> I just said I didn't see that there. I mean, you're right. We don't do it like that. That's not how we, we expect explanations to go from no, no, the past to the too rigid there. I think some people, I, 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 I'm happy to do it like that. I just don't see how it's going to work out mathematically. Yeah. Okay, they're both mathematical yeah, problems and practical problems. From that point of view. Uh, yeah. My point is different, okay? So my point is different from both of you guys. I'm not ruling out. My claim is, is to accept, right now, this would not be considered an acceptable way to go about explaining things. And there's actually, this is just a historical claim that it was thought to be progress in physics that you ruled out teleological explanation, right? That is literally explanation by appeal to a future state, not explanation by appeal to the tendency to produce some state, like a kind of homeostatic explanation or a natural evolutionary explanation, but literally appeal to the existence of the future state in the way we think it's okay to appeal to the existence of There's a chicken-egg problem here. You can refer to that, to that, what you called that progress, as the discovery that the sort of universe we live in, okay, is one nicely characterized by, by, uh, by a restrictive condition on one end rather than on both ends. You can characterize it any number of ways. I'm just pointing. You guys okay. keep attacking. I haven't even made a. I made a historical yeah, claim. I know where you're going. Which I take as <laughs> <laughs> Okay, this is certainly right. 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 Yeah. You know, historically, and and that it would it would re it would be some kind of revolution. We all agree about this. Yeah. It would be some kind of revolution of thought. Yeah. Of physical thought. Of yeah. the thought of what could possibly be an appropriate physical explanation of something if we were to change 
Yes, it would. In that well, it would be a counter-revolution, because as you're pointing out, this view was a revolutionary view at the time it was put forward against the Aristotelian. I don't know. I, 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 if you ask me honestly, I don't know that anybody in the history, in, in, even Aristotle didn't do this. Yeah, Aristotle never no. said the future, say, the future, you know, adult organism. The actual future adult organism is part of the cause of the present development of the embryo. He thought the cause of the present development of the embryo was the form which was implanted by the father in the... So even what he called a teleological explanation was not a reverse causal explanation in time. Okay? Maybe. So, but, but anyway, um, when, when it became... Uh, accepted in, within physics that explanations go in, this, in one direction from past to future. It was thought of uh, as a rejection. You see this is, I don't know, Spinoza comes to mind. I don't really know the history very well, but yeah. this is famous discussion. It was seen <coughs> to be an objection to something. He was objecting to teleological explanations. It might right, be objecting yeah. to some people who had teleological right, right. explanations. Right, right, right. So, so I was just yeah, helping yeah. you out by saying yeah, yeah. that it would probably be <laughs> It would be a, a counter-revolution. Yeah, yeah okay. Um, which, uh, which, which we're not in favor of. Right, which is even worse. Right, then the... So... The guillotine uh, gets even more use. Right, so, look, we... we all I... Again, I, I, you guys keep saying you know where I'm going with it. But, <laughs> but, yeah. But the idea is... Yeah, because we see the future. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, um, it seems to me the normal way things proceed, even if I am going somewhere with it, is is you object to premises on the basis of there being something wrong with them taken on their own, rather than theologically that I'm not going to accept this premise because I don't I know it's leading to this conclusion. I don't want to accept your conclusion. Well, what well, wasn't accepting was rather yeah. agreeing with you, but saying that look, there are ways of seeing what's going on here which are compatible with, I guess, the view that David is doing. Right, right. I, I, I haven't said anything about it being compatible. I mean, what I was trying to do was just say that the issue of direction of time, which is one we're going to take up next week, and we haven't really talked about that much. Right. But it's, I, 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 what I was actually pointing out was how much the direction of time is already implicit in the methodology I was sketching, okay? Right. And I just want people to... to By the way, Tim, just on that subject, are you going to post your paper also on the the passage of time? uh, Or do you think that would be useful? If you think it's useful, I mean, it exists and I can post it. Um, um, Well, I I, I mean, I don't know, maybe you don't think it would be... Yeah, I mean, it sounds... I'll post it. Yeah, it sounds germane. Yeah, so post it. I can post it. Okay. Um, So that, that... it leaves us with a couple, I, and this is the last thing I want to know, we're really trying to argue it. We, of course, have the question of, uh, of explaining, can we explain this God, right, this past hypothesis, this restriction on the, micro, on the macro state at some point. There's the question, is the only way to get rid of, if we think, and, and this is, I'm just not sure what, what David thinks about this, and I'll be interested to find out. Um, the metaculus, just as the, the, this problem of asymmetry, uh, you know, applies to the metaculus just as well as the typicality analysis, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, that's <laughs> <laughs> metaculus is Barry's term from the Cohen brothers for the macro state. The statement of the macro state for together. The following to probability together. distribution: you take the initial macro state uh, of the universe, um, you. Uh, 
you put the you you put over it a prop, you know, you put over the micro conditions compatible with it the usual uniform probability distribution you evolve that into a probability distribution over full trajectories of the world the name of that probability distribution over trajectories is the mentality where does that name come from? From this Cone Brothers movie, where from from a serious man, the Jewish movie. You, you saw it. I saw it. I just didn't remember. Um, remember, the, remember the psychotic <laughs> brother, the psychotic brother who who uh, there's a psych the, the protagonist has a psychotic brother who's keeping a big notebook that he refers to as a probability map of the world, and that he calls oh. them intaculous. <laughs> <laughs> so I was at a conference, in, in a workshop conference in Cologne about a month ago, in which um, there was a lot of discussion of the intaculous, actually, and one of the people in the audience said that he had heard of it before, and that, it, it, that he was pointing it out to people there, that the Cone brothers had even heard of it. And <laughs> <laughs> Can you Google it? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. Um, right. So, so this is just the last point. So, what we said is, is both for the kind of the, the, the analysis where you put a, prob a specific probability measure over these microstates, and the analysis I was trying to sketch last week, where you don't do that and you do something that's more generic thing of just making a distinction between big and small sets. They both have problems that they, they will make claims. Right, there's nothing time asymmetric in the way you sketch out that mm -hmm. abstract object. Right. And that what typically happens or what happens with high probability or whatever in one direction really seems to fit what actually happened in the universe. Uh, now the question is what to say about the other direction. Mm -hmm. One thing to say is there ain't no other direction because it's really important that I put this literally at the initial moment of the universe. One thing you could say is uh, if I put this early enough, and, and this is, I'm, I'm not saying this because David says this, but this is kind of what Sean's going to say if I understand him. If I put this in the right place, I can just accept that all this, what I think right. of as weird stuff happening, right. Right. okay, right. because it, it ain't around me, and right. I don't have any records of it, right. and, uh, you know, so right. who's to say? Right. Um, one possibility, as, as I said, is simply to say, is to put an extra restriction on the gadget and say the gadget only works in one direction, okay, um, which then just doesn't tell you anything about what happened before this. But also the, the question last time, although I, we, I, I'm feeling bad about delaying Barry here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The question yeah. last time was to was to make sure we understand that, it, that on the face of it, it sounds sort of instrumentalist to say here's the gadget, but it only works in one direction. Yeah, yeah. you keep repeating that. I mean, and again, I'll, I'll just stop because we'll go back and forth right. forever, and Barry should go. I will say, which I said before. I, I would put, let me say I would appreciate a, a clear understanding of when the charge of instrumentalism okay. in your mind is appropriate and when it's inappropriate because okay. I can't quite figure that okay. out. Okay. Okay. Um, Fair enough. Um, it's it would be a straightforward physical fact that it works in one direction, not the other. Sure, right. but it's the kind, and, and this is just to repeat the dialogue yeah. we got into last time, it feels like, sure, it's, it's a straightforward physical fact that this calculational procedure works in one direction and not in another, but it's the kind of physical fact 
that seems to invite a question of the form, yes, but in virtue of what more basic facts about the way the world is, is it the case that it works? Good. And that brings us sort of to the question of whether you could appeal to the direction of time itself in right. answering that, which will... Okay, we'll good. That, that, so good. we'll just hand it over now okay. to Barry. You don't, have to, you, don't, you don't have to make any comment about this. I can do whatever you want. Well, I guess I, when you said, you know, a uh, hundred million years ago when the dinosaurs were roaming Manhattan, you know, probably you think about it that <clears throat> all of it was leading to this meeting. Kind of Hegelian. Or, you know, as depressing as Nietzsche's eternal return of the same or something. If you thought, can you, oh, yeah. can you could you embrace such a picture of the universe, Barry? <laughs> um, okay, so... Yeah, so I guess I'm going to say some things about time and explanation, but I'd really like to get a much clearer understanding of is, uh, and I, I know this has come up because I've heard some of the pod, the podcasts um, here, is, you know, it's been developed as a kind of uh, contretemps between um, Tim and David, and there's some differences about how to think about laws, how to think about probability, how to think about explanation, and I don't know whether you guys have ever written on the board any place. Here's my views about this. Here's my views no. About this. no, but that might be very useful. Useful. <laughs> I mean, without going into so much detail, just in a rough uh, way. So, for example, let me just say this before I get to what I was. Most Did you ever think poker? I mean, when Tim is when Tim is saying, well, "What's you know, what's instrumentalist about it?" I mean, I think he's saying that in part because he thinks. That anyway, this spectacular probability is sort of just an instrument, um, and so it doesn't seem like any worse instrumentalism because it's not the real thing that's that's making anything move. Whereas you're probably thinking, and I'm certainly thinking, that in fact it's as much part of the physics story as as Schrodinger's equation or as a law or anything like that. So I, I think the differences about how to think about laws and how to think about probability enter in a lot of these, this discussion. Also, I think the ambitions is one thing I'd really like to hear about, which I think I've, I maybe misunderstood Tim a little bit at some point, or it sort of changed, I'm not exactly sure. But I thought that Tim, this is way more, almost like, I'm going to put words in your mouth a little bit, so you can just throw them out. <laughs> I won't get. I actually, won't quite get to your mouth. <laughs> but I think you didn't. Li- you don't like the imperialist and fundamentalist nature of this project that David and I are interested in. It just goes too far. Particularly, it's assigning probabilities to the Cubs winning the World Series. Well, typically they don't. They don't. I, so, actually, if if you don't mind, let me. I mean, it, it it's not. There are a couple issues that come up. One is, we've been talking about what I think of as a particular kind of statistical explanation. I think there are other kinds of explanation than statistical explanation. Um, um, of the, you know, why, you know, to take Putnam's example, why won't the square peg fit in the round hole? I don't really think that the structure of what he does there is, in fact, to say, um, don't think of this in the terms of the statist- kind of statistical explanation I've been 
looking at, where you look at all the possible and so everybody, I don't know if you know this example, so Putnam says, look, it's a fact that the square peg won't fit through the round hole. Can physics explain that fact? Well, here's something physics could do, if we think of physics as the micro laws, essentially, is look at all the possible trajectories, right? You have this space of possible ways I could throw the square peg at the round hole and calculate from the microdynamics what happens. And notice in this case, presumably, actually even for a set of measure one or maybe without exception for, for that particular example for a certain kind of physics. And not quantum. Uh, not quantum not physics, quantum. right? Quantum. <laughs> the quantum peg has, a, has some probability of, of quantum tunneling <laughs> through, right? That doesn't exactly go through the hole. It, it appears on the other side. Okay, but, but imagine you're doing it in classical physics that, that you actually could show there just doesn't exist any trajectory, right? Any exact micro trajectory that takes this system through that system. Um, by the way I've been doing things, then, then the thing bouncing off would count as typical. And from a certain point of view, you'd have a kind of explanation of why it doesn't go through on any particular try. Putnam's point in that paper is, but there's another kind of explanation that doesn't talk about typicality and doesn't talk about statistics. It talks about things like shape, right? It embeds, it embeds that phenomenon in a different set of categories sort of altogether and provides you a different kind of insight and understanding. I agree with that, right? So what I've been trying to do is articulate this particular thing I think of a statistical explanation. And I think it's one of a whole bunch of different kinds of explanation. The, the one thing I find sometimes that seems overweening about the way David will talk about the mentaculus is that somehow everything that would ever count as scientific understanding is supposed to follow from it. And I'm just not making that claim, right? I'm making a very much more specific claim about a certain kind of statistical understanding where this Maxwellian, Boltzmannian kind of approach is, is, is the standard. So I don't think that, but I do yeah. that I agree with you about Putnam, except for this little footnote I put, that of course Putnam is assuming sort of standard things about dynamics, make the dynamics as it did change the quantum mechanics, and in fact, the, yeah. the, the okay, but it's rather weird at that. So there are some assumptions that are just taking a background about the dynamics, so it's not just shape. Um, but the other thing to say is that we have this idea that uh, at the level of fundamental uh, laws, that they are, and here I think we have a lot of agreement, I think, that they are the mechanism of explanation in general. Not, of course, not in mathematical explanation, maybe not elsewhere. In, this, in Putnam's explanation, too, they are playing a role, in this case in the background, but also to give an account of what a good explanation is, we have to also refer to the, talk about the language in which the explanations are, are characterized, um, because of course the physics explanation might be one that we just couldn't even understand. And it doesn't satisfy, doesn't answer a question in the terms that we, that we uh, ask the question. Um, okay, so, good. So let's see. So I was, so I was saying that I, one of the places where I thought that you and David disagreed is that the Mentaculous project is very, very imperialistic. Let me say some ways in which it's imperialistic. Um, there's a, um, an idea that maybe causation or something close to causation could be characterized probabilistically. 
it's a talk, a view about this and how it might work out. And other people have had things in this neighborhood, Thomas, Thomas does. And um, uh, the probabilities for that could well come from the ventaculus. That's the idea. It's a place where they come up. Counterfactuals um, might be that we can give a good understanding of condi conditionals in general by a point referring to that probability distribution. When epistemologists think about notions of reliability and they want some sort of objective probability around the mentaculous can handle the probability. I'm not arguing yeah, yeah, these yeah. right now, but there is a lot of imperialism. Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, you know, you picked a place where you know I agree that they, there Putnam definitely's point is is correct because of physics. Many special science laws or principles, I don't want to call them laws, but special science generalizations that come up that people are puzzled over how do they fit in with physics. Um, I think that the metaculus provides a way of seeing how they could fit into physics. Special science explanations and law principles are generally temporally asymmetrical in the way that metaculus um, Can you actually just give an example of what you have in mind there so I have some in context? Um, I mean, wh who, what, what might someone be puzzled about? Well, so the, a puzzle that someone might have is, is uh, this. Special science uh, generalization like uh, smoking um, leads to lung cancer. That's a causal one. Um, uh, it might be reformulated in terms of increasing probability of um, uh, the, uh, whether that not that gets at everything involved in causation it doesn't but Im imagine just like that well, you wonder where does that come from where does that probability come from in smoking cancer in smoking increases the probability of cancer more generally the special science uh, principles um, are from states going to other states, but not they don't go in reverse. Okay, can I just make a comment here? Mm -hmm. Just to, uh, I don't want to push it hard, um, but just so you know, lay down some markers. Sometimes when people talk about certain kinds of special science explanations, and this was you know, the kind of example that Kitcher used when he was talking. Uh, you know, you ask, what's the explanation for for sex ratios in populations, and Someone, uh, you know, an evolutionary biologist, as it were, embeds the whole thing in game theory and calculates some uh, uh, optimal strategy for maximizing something or other. And one of the things they would claim, and I think this is closer to the Putnam point, is if you get too far down into the details of the particular physics that governs our world, you've gone too far down in the weeds, right? that um, um, if you see the principles of explanation here, you see that suppose someone says, look, suppose the physics were entirely different. It were, you know, I don't know, Democritian physics, and it was all just shaped atoms with hooks and so on. But nonetheless, somehow with these shaped atoms with hooks, you could have reproducing creatures, and they passed on information through something that operates like genes and it, from an information theoretic point of view and there's recombination and blah 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 and the whole physics is completely different underneath but this explanation I just gave you would be unchanged and that shows that that somehow the fundamental explanatory principles aren't embedded in the particular dynamics microdynamics and therefore if what you're offering me is something that really is 
wedded to the microdynamics in a certain way, you, you're, you're doing this at the wrong level of generalization. So there would be a dispute yeah. over what fundamental comes to yeah. there. Um, that would be a really interesting discussion to have, too. Um, what I was doing, the direction I started out in, was sort of just thinking extemporaneously about some of the places where you yeah. and David disagree. One is the ambitions, um, and, and that's coming up for sure. Yeah. So, so the, there are, what would be nice is to have a list. Here are the ambitions of the calculus. Here's where Tim thinks this is overweening and imperialistic. And of course, that could lead to individual arguments because there might be places where the metaculus says it can do something, and in fact, it could be an argument that it doesn't succeed in, in doing that. Of course, if it does succeed in doing it, then we'd want to be able to fit in the kinds of remarks that you're making into that because, of course, you're, you're, you're right that the, uh, um, let's say, the explanation, that, that the evolutionary explanation, would um, uh, be one that's realized in the physics, but could be realized in other physics, and that's an interesting fact about them. But it's also interesting that they're realized in our physics, and here's how that works, and here's why the probability distribution is going to be important in the explanation of why it's realized in our <coughs> So, So that was one place. Another place, of course, which is one mainly I want to talk about in a minute, is over the direction, of, over the nature of laws, and another one is over the nature of the distinction between the past and the future. Okay, so, so I wanted to talk about that. So I'm going to talk about that for about five minutes and then maybe we get discussion. Okay. And uh, a little bit about how, I wouldn't say how I got into this because I got interested, I, mean, I know how I got interested in thinking about the metaphysics of law. I mean, that was a long time ago. Um, but as luck would have it or, or maybe fate was, was sort of driving things in this direction. Um, <laughs> the view that I thought was interesting was, was Lewis's best system account. Although, you know, I was aware from the beginning that the way he wedded it to the con his particular Jungian supervenience was not, was, didn't seem quite right to me. Um, and then as luck would have it, or whatever, um, you know, Tim, uh, was my colleague and had a, a rather different view about this. So I don't think this has been discussed very much here, has it? The metaphysics? No, no, no okay. not at all. But it has struck me a number from you listening to the podcast that it's like, um, what do they say? Uh, the elephant in the room. <laughs> 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 um, about this. And I don't know really quite how it works because. Can I ask a question that David, you agree that that thing lurking in the background is a lot lies behind a lot of the debates you guys have been having. Yes, I think I do agree. I think uh, I don't I, I'm agree. not sure where it does and where it doesn't. And um, it also comes in in different places. So it's somewhat confusing to, to me. I have a story about that, about why Tim made the moves he made. But it, it's a story which entirely is, uh, um, I mean, Tim would view it as a Whiggish rewriting of why Tim was doing various things. I don't think I'll really say it here. But, um, uh, isn't it all being abused as a child? <laughs> no, it has, it has, it has to do, it has to do, I, I'll be really explicit about it. From, I thought that, that the, the metaphysical view about laws that you had didn't really 
have a, accommodate probability in a, a, in a very, ha maybe you won't even disagree with this, in such a happy way at first. So you started thinking very hard about how to think about probability. And that divided up into really two stories. The kind of account that Shelley has developed, which gets rid of probability as such in favor of typicality, and is involved in certain kinds of statistical explanations. And we should distinguish here between dynamical and non-dynamical probability. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and the kind that's involved in propensities or you know, oh, dynamical. Okay. Uh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a little like <laughs> um, And you have somewhat different things to say about both of them. And of course, this makes for a big difference with this kind of Louisian conception, which ends up saying the same thing pretty much about both of them, or views them at least at a metaphysical level in the same way. Okay, so so since you didn't haven't talked about this that much in this seminar, I will talk about it yes. in, in a little bit. Okay, so here's something I'll, I haven't really examined this for, you know, my thoughts about this for real accuracy, so I'll stick my neck out a little bit, but anybody who wants to chime in, I'd be really interested in, in hearing. But my own sort of History is something like this. If you, if you, um, the, the concept of law, law of nature, scientific law, you definitely see it being used in the 18th century. And what it's, what comes previously about it, I'm not sure. I, I have often said when I've given talks, gee, I wish somebody would write a monograph about the history of the concept of scientific law. And none, I don't know that any exists. In fact, there is some stuff around, but I really still don't know of anything. There might be something and someone here knows it knows about it. I've talked to people who are experts in, in 17th century. Oh, Michael has written one. Uh, no. <laughs> but there is a, I, I, I had read a paper about whether the concept of law first comes up at that time by a medieval scholar who argues that it doesn't, that it's around before then. Yeah. I, so, I mean, you can see things that are perkers of that even in the, you know, in the, in the pre-Socratics, it's like, if you need, need to report. So and certainly with Aristotelian necessity and that sort of Yeah, so I, I'm just not sure. But um, there is, anyway, it's around then, for whatever it is. But what you don't find that much, that I know much about anything about, actually, is philosophers asking, in the way they started asking about things, I don't know, in, in more recent times, what are laws? Are they fundamental things? Are they in the properties? I mean, there's a view seems to be that somehow what's really there are the substances of the properties and that they, by their very nature, engage in this whatever lawful behavior. Um, uh, but anyway, you don't find it until fairly recently the kinds of metaphysical views that have been developed in, in response to the question of what makes it the case, not just that let's suppose let's use this example, F equals MA is a truth, but makes it a law, okay, if it were, or, or whatever the favorite example is. Um, and you do find that coming up. What you do find in the, uh, you know, in the, in the sort of post-positivist discussions, but before we got to the way metaphysics took off 20, 25, 30 years ago, is um, a kind of um, assumed humanism. I think. Laws are just propositions, they're regularities of some special sort. Don't ask me too much more about it. And you see that in Hempel for a while until Hempel, uh, uh, a paper he wrote towards the end, of, and I think sort of suggests maybe a different view. Popper also seems to have a different sort of uh, more metaphysical view about what makes uh, uh, claims laws, propositions laws. 
But in any, any case, in general, you see a kind of uh, unionish kind of view. And then on, sometime in the, uh, in the 70s and the 80s, there seemed to be these three views that got um, articulated. So I'm just going to say what they are. I think they sort of, you know, this is very standard. Almost cover the territory here. Um, one is uh, a kind of humanism, regularity theory, the laws of propositions, but a sophisticated version that David Lewis suggested in terms of his best systems account. Um, at a rough first approximation, and I'm not sure that there's too much more by way of a second approximation or a third yet, <laughs> um, which is a little discouraging, and you know, my own uh, stuff is a little bit on a second approximation to it. Um, uh, there's a uh, uh, a history at the micro level of the universe. Imagine that's written down in some gigantic book, the infinitely big, maybe uncountably infinitely big. And um, uh, a system or a theory, a candidate for a best theory of the world would be a, uh, a theory that's true, that is highly informative about what's in that book, and relatively simple, and maybe satisfies other constraints that are found within the tradition of coming up with the fundamental theory of the world that's been developed through the successes of Newtonian mechanics and Maxwellian theory and quantum mechanics and general relativity and so on. Okay, so that's the Lewis conception. Um, then there was this other conception that began in a somewhat clunky way uh, that Armstrong and Dretzky and... Uh, Michael Tooley and some other people. And that's that laws in some way correspond to features, facts, I don't know, things that uh, uh, relations in, in Armstrong do the relations between properties. Armstrong called the relation of contingent necessitation. Um, and his idea was that there are these relations between properties and they are over and above the uh, Yumian mosaic that Lewis thought of as being well summarized by the best theory. Uh, I didn't say this, but for Lewis, the laws are then certain uh, uh, propositions that are entailed by the best theory. Um, and for Armstrong, was denying this humanism and saying that well, there's real modality in the world of some sort. It corresponds to this relations of contingent uh, necessitation. Uh, and then there's a view that says the fundamental features of the world are, have within them, so to speak, causal powers or powers or nomological powers or something like that. So the laws aren't basic. They turn out to be propositions, but they're propositions that are made true by the nature of the fundamental properties. So the, it's a, a power of some property, I don't know what, um, gravitational mass maybe to produce a certain force field. Uh, uh, um, and uh, these three views were around. Now, Tim's view, I think, is a, a, a cleaned up, much better version of the Armstrong view, but I don't think no, whether Tim would accept this characterization of it, and we've talked about it a lot. I'm not really clear quite how he thinks about it, in the sense that he thinks that laws are real features of the, the, the universe. They're part of the ontology, but they're not individuals. They're not space-time or space-time points. They're not properties um, or whatever other kinds of features in the ontology there might be. They're, they're laws. And um, I, he's thinking of laws in a dynamic <coughs> way. Laws are the 
features of the um, uh, reality which um, explain um, the, the, the production of one state out of another. Um, so laws produce. So you, Tim uses this language of production quite a bit um, in, in characterizing them. Um, I take it, I, I take it, let me just, the laws don't just explain the production, they accomplish the production, they do the production. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. they, yeah. they, they, they explain they by doing I mean, yeah, they yeah. play a, a role, an intermittent role in the production of the future from the past. Right. Um, and if you ask me what, it, you know, to, 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 to describe that role, I mean, we get, we get to this question. We don't disagree about how you represent it as a differential equation. We don't disagree about how you would use that differential equation given a time at one, given the state at one time to determine whatever you want to say, a state at a later time, right, as a logical matter. Or an earlier time. Or an earlier time, right. right. And the picture is, right, that, but that there is, in fact, a preferred, um, importantly preferred direction in which time passes. That the passage of time in that direction is the production of the future from the past right. in a way that there is no corresponding right. production and of the laws past that from do the future. And it, and it is the laws, yes. Yeah. Right. So I was trying to describe these two views non polemically. I probably really can't totally succeed with that. <laughs> I mean, let, let me just, can I just make one comment that might be a little, I mean, very focused on, and historically this might be absolutely correct. Uh, the words necessity, this funny phrase contingent necessitation, I guess, which you know might strike you as being a contradiction in terms and so on. Um, that's nothing I ever focused on. I think if you give me the laws, I will explain, talk about what's physically possible and what's physically mm-hmm. necessary in, a, in the obvious way, that is, if you give me the laws like the laws of Newtonian physics, then there are models of those laws, and I can treat those models as a set of possible worlds and use the usual kind of possible world semantics with boxes and diamonds. And it'll turn out, if you do that, then the laws themselves are necessary, right? <laughs> because they're true in all the possible... But that's trivial. It's not, that's not, as it were, a deep metaphysical yes. fact. Yes. That's just sort of a, you know, that, that you just get that for free. So I was never focused on necessitation. And if you read Hume and you're worried about necessary connection, you might be worried about that. I never thought that was very important. Um, this is just... Right. Yeah, but, Michael. Did, did I understand it correctly that your understanding of laws in some sort depends fundamentally on the asymmetry of time, on time having a direction? Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, that was where, where I was going yes. with this, actually. But Michael was going to... I guess it's, it's, well, it seems to me there's sort of two notions of something or other going on here. One is the sense in which the laws are nonologically necessary, which can be given a very trivial glass. And then there's this sense of the necessitation relation by which the the nonological antecedent brings about the nonological consequent. And in some sense, when Armstrong talks about contingent necessitation, he's just talking about exactly that same that you're talking about when... Yeah, in somewhat different. I mean, I'm not. So maybe I should ask you what you mean by nomological. So, so suppose you give me the laws, then there's a clear sense, and you give me an idea. You 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 grant me that there's something about the past to future direction I can appeal to as being kind of special. Yeah. And now I say, okay, now I have an account of why this earlier state gave rise to necessitated in some sense this later state in virtue of these being the laws. So that's just. 
That's not, you know, so what do you mean by the nomological antecedent here is just the early, I mean, the earlier yeah, state yeah, is yeah, not described. Here it's just the earlier state, yeah. the later state, but yeah. it's a, can, you know, people struggle to come up with the right metaphor or technical right. term to capture this giving rise to. Yes. And Armstrong talk, and other people talk about necessitation, and right. some people talk about making it happen. And right. Some people the are only nomological dependence, but I yeah. think they're all, if they're, at least on right. the, on, there's a line you can draw. Uh, on one side are the sort of the more Humean people, on the other side are you and Armstrong and Gretzky and Tullian. And in this respect, it seems to me it's, a, it's exactly the same. I don't think it's exactly right. Well, okay, so I think. Should have approximately the same. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so here are some finer points here. So, so Armstrong makes no connection to the direction of time and his laws, absolutely none. Right. He's thinking about laws in a really primitive and embarrassing way for popular <laughs> science. Um, these examples are like that. Um, he does think of laws as somehow constraint, he just talks of language of constraint, which makes, you know, some sort of necessary, words like necessary, he uses those, those terms. So I, while I agree that I want to think of Tim and Armstrong um, as being sort of in the same ballpark, in the, as, as opposed to a, two other views on that side of things I'm going to mention in a second. There's some really important differences. One Tim brought out, I think he's totally right, I agree with that, better to drop this notion. Tim probably could, go, could live, live perfectly happy if the notion of metaphysical necessity was just sequestered in a small room with some other part of it like you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> on the sixth floor. But whatever. Okay. So so um, yeah. Uh, so the other view. So on the other hand, the people who followed an idea that's in uh, I don't know in various places, but. Um, uh, uh, Sidney Shoemaker you know, has a couple of famous papers in which he has a view like this and, and Chris Swire and a lot of other people Alexander Bird is a book you know, it's just bibliographical references for people who maybe aren't familiar to the stuff they think of the, the laws as somehow following from the nature it's a very nature of one property when it's instantiated in a certain way to um, uh, uh, necessitate I may mean by necessitate, really metaphysically necessitate the instantiation of other properties. So they actually think that they're reducing um, uh, physical necessity to metaphysical necessity. And that's another line. So if you, were to, if you were to try to categorize the views here in a sort of metaphysical map kind of way, you might have on one side the people who think that, look, what's fundamental, in the, at least in the contingent metaphysics of the world, is something, let's just call it the mosaic. Yumian uh, mosaic, only Yumian in the sense that there are no necessary connections, metaphysically necessary connections between fundamental properties or whatever plays a role of properties instantiated in distinct space-time regions. Um, in the end of the day, I don't hold that that view. I have a kind of an irenic kind of you know coming together of all views, but we have to talk about that today. Um, um, so that so that's the union side and laws. And all the nomological modalities, laws, probabilities, counterfactuals, causation, it's going to sit on top of all of that as kind of very interesting uh, kind of um, propositions about that stuff. I also, and this is a very important, just in my view, I, I didn't mean to go quite this, but since I said this now, because I think I can see when reading some of Tim's things, that he wants to view the Yumian 
as providing something like a conceptual analysis of laws and, and um, um, probability and counterfactuals in these terms. And Lewis certainly seems to be representing himself that way, but that's not my view. I don't think of this as conceptual analysis. It's rather a proposal for how the universe might be. So it's ultimately will earn its, you know, its stars, if it gets any, as a good explanation for the, uh, the, the phenomena. Okay. Um, so there's the Jungian view. There's this view that says that, the, that um, laws are elements of reality over and above the mosaic that does something to the mosaic. Armstrong talks of it as constraining. Uh, Tim thinks of it in terms of di- dynamically producing. Then there's this Shoemaker-type view, which can be um, maybe developed at, for, in a more physics-friendly way than Shoemaker does it, um, for, in which the, the, what's really fundamental is something like the causal powers or powers or something like that of, uh, of fundamental properties or fundamental entities and properties. Um, and then there's also this kind of laws are explained ultimately in terms of counterfactuals that Mark Lang has um, and, uh, and uh, um, I, let's just put that to your side so this, this seems to me to be the landscape basically um, there's also kind of some people who take the notion of physical sets of possible worlds that are physically possible as basic who has that view, has that view? Um, maybe Storrs McCall I don't know Okay, so there's some views, but, but, but what seems to me the main, what the main division, or a way of looking at a main division is, Numeans on one side, because they have less stuff in the fundamental ontology, and then these other views on the other um, side. They always have much more metaphysical um, uh, stature. They're not reduced in, quite, in the same way, though, of course, the Shoemakerian view is, is reducing it, but reducing it to something that they're characterizing in terms of powers which is a, a nomological notion. Okay, so it struck me when thinking about this, I kind of like the Lewisian view, at least to explore, for this reason. Here's the, here's the day I remember very vividly. When I first started teaching at Rutgers, I was teaching a seminar going through a manuscript of von Frossen's Laws and Symmetries. You know this book, some of you? You know, it's a really interesting book. I mean, because his general view there is phi on everybody, uh, all these views. Um, and um, he thinks the right thing to do is get rid of all talk about laws, which he then goes in the second hand to just reintroduce by talking about <laughs> that's, uh, that's symmetries. But, but um, um, uh, maybe that's not doing him right credit. But anyway, so he... book is really interesting. And, um, and I was thinking about um, uh, the Luisian view a bit, and... Uh, Lewis says it just a few remarks about how to deal with probability within the view. And his idea was that, well, we might introduce probability, probabilistic notions, as a kind of uh, a formal mathematical device to help in producing simple summaries of the world. Um, he doesn't really say very much about it. But the sort of idea that I, I guess he had in mind then is the idea that uh, was explained to me, I think, the first time I ran it, was introduced to probability in us high school course even, and that is we're using probabilistic notions to summarize a lot of information in the way that somebody might um, say that, look, if you, you have a long sequence of ones and zeros or heads and tails or whatever, you might summarize that long sequence if it's amenable to this kind of summary um, uh, by saying that look, they were, um, uh, they're the result of a, uh, uh, 
of a, a process on which the flips of a coin were independent, and um, the probability was constant on each uh, flip. Um, that way, you might tell a lot about a long, long sequence uh, in a simple manner. So that's Lewis's idea, but taken to a really fundamental level, where to talk about flipping coins and, and producing is, is excised from, from that um, talk. So his idea seemed to be this, that um, a, a probabilistic um, theory of the uh, best theory of the world would be one which has, let's say, a probabilistic dynamics and indeterministic dynamics that provides a really simple and good summary of the actual history of the world. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of questions and problems have come up around that, like what exactly is a, is it being, is it for the probabilistic account to be a good, uh, to be informative? Because he doesn't mean by that informative about the probabilities, because he's explaining, reducing probabilities to something else. The idea then being that a probabilistic statement is true if it's entailed by um, the best theory of the world. So that was Lewis's idea. And then it struck me... Can, can I just ask you okay. a question? Mm-hmm. Um, so, remember, we're at the non-polemical discussion. I, I understand. No, I'm, just trying, <laughs> I, I'm just trying to get clear because I think this is also where the issue about what's instrumental and what's not mm-hmm. starts to creep in. Um, the content of saying... You say, I, ha- I have an actual sequence, heads, tails, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And um, I don't want to go to the trouble. The, 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 the completely accurate description of it would be to tell me whether it was heads or tails in each slot. Um, I don't want to go to that trouble. You said, well, I might say it's the result of, think of it as, I'm not sure how to, how to, how to, what I put ahead of this. Somewhere I say, uh, a series of flips of independent, you know, of a coin, mm-hmm. say a fair coin, where they're all independent, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Now, it's of course consistent with the description you gave that the sequence be all heads. Mm-hmm. Or all tails, or any sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you might want to, so I'm not quite sure how saying that described the sequence in front of me. Now, you might want to say, well, it has certain statistical properties of a typical now, you know, <laughs> sequence that would be the output of such a thing. But that's not what you said. So I'm just trying to understand what's the exact content conveyed by the, by the description. Well, look, we, we all agree. Or, or, let me give you or you could say, no, no, just set your subjective probabilities for when you open your eyes and look at this sequence. Set them the way you'd set them if I told you it was, I just flipped a coin, a fair coin, blah, blah, blah. That's yet a different thing. So, so what do you have in mind if the description Just like I that. didn't press a further inquiry about exactly what produce means yes. in your account, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm here saying, look, we all can accept on hearing this that you're given information about the sequence, about what the, what, what the, what, what the outcome, you're, you're told we, we, we have a conception about which sequences fit that description and which don't. And that's giving us some information about the sequence. So if, if I say to you, look, here's a description of the sequence, and someone else says, here's another description of the sequence, we can at least 
talk about how well those two descriptions fit. Um, it's stati statisticians do that all the time. Okay, so you, that's yeah. what you might you might have in mind a statistical right. They're just measuring. But I'm going to say at this point, I'm not going to say exactly how. That is an issue here, and Lewis himself, it, uh, his discussion of this I found a little puzzling. He doesn't literally connect up what he calls fit with information. So he doesn't actually say, look, the reason I'm adding fit as on the list of the desiderata for a best theory is that it plays the role of information for when you have a probabilistic theory. I think he should have said that, but he doesn't say that. And maybe there's a good reason sometimes. I found that Lewis has a better reason for why he says what he says or doesn't say what he says than I have. Okay. I've had experience I've had a few times. But I think he should have said that or could have said that. And um, and then he gives a specific proposal about how to measure fit. Basically, it's in terms of how likely, it's in terms of the likelihood of that history of the world on the particular hypothesis. I think that doesn't work out so well for reasons that Adam, Adam Elder brings up in the paper of his, and other, I mean, I actually said earlier than that paper of mine. So, you got, so that is a place where the, the view needs to be made more precise and something better said. But I think it's enough to give the general flavor idea of the account to say what I did say already. The idea of thinking about probability as being introduced, or just call it if you want, Lewis probability, as being introduced as a device for giving information about the world. It's simple, simple, in a simple way, giving information about the world. This question you're now talking about is related, of course, to the one Tim raised earlier about how do you cleanly separate those kinds of atypical events which you don't mm -hmm. say require an explanation. Those which would. Well, there's nothing yet about explanation. No, but the fit. Well, I mean, when do you say something doesn't fit? Yes, I agree. And, I mean, in the end of the day, I'm going to say that, that the uh, practice of how physicists actually or scientists actually uh, go about determining what fits and what doesn't, when extrapolated in, the, in this kind of extreme application, is what's going to give the guide to determining what counts as fit. Tim brought this question up, though, with the question of what counts as instrumental, and I'm pretty sure what he has in the back of his mind is, well, why isn't this just an instrument? Why isn't this just instrumental? And I think there's a difference. So it's a good thing to, to get clearer, for me to get clearer about than I am. So in, in the case of, let's say, somebody might be using Ptolemaic astronomy, not a very good historical example, but using Ptolemaic astronomy as an instrument because of its elegance and simplicity for <laughs> predicting the motions of the planets while believing, ah, I just turned this back. You know, I get, the story is that, that the uh, accusers of Galileo said that he could believe, he could uh, write about his, uh, his, his heliocentric model and say it's a good, simple instrument for making the predictions, um, uh, as long as he says it's not true, that the Ptolemaic one is true. So I'm reversing what I was saying before. That clearly is instrumentalistic, if one had that attitude. Here, it's not instrumentalistic in that way, because we're really, we're, it's a proposal for how to give content to a certain, other, so far uninterpreted, um, uh, a mathematical object, this uh, probability or conditional probability function, and I'm telling you how to interpret it. So it, it will end up that probabilistic claims, as made by the um, uh, Lucian account, will be true or false. And the attitude that one wants to take to it is the attitude that they're true. So it's not 
it's not instrumentalism in the, in the other, in the sense in which uh, Galileo was told that it'd be all right if he just accepted the heliocentric account as, as instrumental. Anyway, so there's the Lewisian account. Now, so now here's the so. On the one hand, I thought probability had always puzzled me exactly how to think about what probability is. Um, uh, 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 finite frequency accounts just seem hopeless. Uh, modal frequency accounts seem uh, necessarily hopeless. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 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 Even with jet lag, it <laughs> Propensity accounts, well, people say about them that they are mysterious, and I think that too. I, I think it would be good to really get to the bottom of what exactly those accounts are, what they amount to, but they're basically, um, you know, irreducibility. You're not going to explain probability in terms of something else. I think Tim has that kind of view for dynamical probability, and it would be good to understand exactly what somebody who doesn't like that account finds objectionable, and maybe it's based on misunderstandings, and, and, and get that discussion developed further than it has right now. But in any case, I'm just telling you my own psychology was that I thought, wow, Lewis is a new player on the block. And it seemed to be, on the one hand, like uh, actualist accounts, in that all it was, it wasn't making any more demands on the metaphysics. To what actually happens, that was good. But unlike actual frequency accounts, it had room for the kinds of uh, probabilities that physics uh, posits. And it looks like it fit together with the notion of laws really well. In fact, the two just come together with each other. And I thought that that was really a good thing about it as, as well. But what really struck me as interesting is that um, in uh, uh, Pache Lewis, um, it... it uh, is that how Pache is pronounced? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, uh, it l allowed for there being probabilistic claims, even when the dynamics was uh, is um, deterministic. And I thought that was important because you want to make use of something like probabilistic claims in uh, in, in, in theories which have the dynamical dynamics that are deterministic like statistical mechanics with deterministic dynamics and like Bohmian mechanics with deterministic uh, dynamics. So um, Lewis's account naturally extended to this, and I can tell you, this is just more anecdotal, you know, if you want, but I uh, bumped into Lewis at something that we were on a, giving talks at something at Syracuse a while a long time ago, and I mentioned this to him, and he told me, well, then he said they wouldn't be probabilities then if the dynamics was deterministic. And then we talked it for about it for a while, and he said, well, okay, yeah. <laughs> so it's the one time I know where something happened where Lewis seemed to, uh, you know, sort of accept. I, I don't mean that he was a very dogmatic philosopher. He wasn't, but this is just in my own interactions with him. So but, I mean, I can add good. something to that story. Lewis stood up in the middle of that conference and said, Barry has shown me how to understand the... Uh, non-dynamical probability. I thought what he said is, that's what my view then was. Barry can have it. <laughs> <laughs> that's not what he said. <laughs> so, okay. So, so, I, so, I, so for me personally, I thought this was like really cool. 
because Lewis's account seems to make some contact with scientific practice. This whole notion of best theory does that. It seems to be metaphysically not. Now I'm being a little polemical, but just saying positive things. <laughs> okay, you get the picture. You know, there's a paper that, a few papers that are around that says that. Okay. So, okay, so there are these views. Then something struck me about Tim's account. Now, I'm not sure what Tim, Tim should chime in here, because I'm not sure to what extent he, he emphasized, or even, well, he certainly emphasized the paper that, he, that Tim had wrote about floats, about laws, was basically a plea for taking the notion of dynamical law as just a basic concept essential to physics. Um, there's a way in which, I haven't reread that paper so recently, but I remember re looking at it again, I don't know, four or five years ago, and thinking that in a way, Tim, it, it was not so metaphysically driven so much there as, as conceptually. Uh, I, so, I mean, since this is just auto, devolved into autobiography, uh, <laughs> uh, let me maybe say a word so you can understand and, and pick up on something else that Barry said. A while ago, I was going to chime in, and I didn't. Um, when he said, "Well, when you look at Armstrong, so you know, I'm, I'm, when I'm coming into philosophy, doing philosophy of science, I'm starting to read these people about laws, and you read Armstrong, or you go back and you read Hempel, and all these, you know, logical empiricists. And you know, for Hempel, you know, the law was the the standard example of a law was all ravens are black. Now." <laughs> You're just not going to get anywhere if that's what you start out as your example of a law, right? It's not true. It's a very subtle and complex law that you misunderstood because <laughs> yeah. Hempel insisted that all it amounted to was for all that. I mean, you know, the, the, you know, it, it, you should <laughs> notice that the discovery of albino ravens was, you know, is not, I take it there are such things, and even if there haven't been found yet, if they find one tomorrow, no one's going to say, my God, a law of biology has, you know, there's a counterexample to a law of biology, okay? It, it just doesn't have that status. So you start with that thing. And then, you know, and you put it, cause it and why do you do it? Because you can put it in first order predicate calculus, right? For all x, rx, horseshoe, bx. And then if you're, and then it seems to me, if you're Armstrong, you say, well, gee, what's the status of this? It's some relation between rness and bness. Ravenhood, somehow, <laughs> that property, which we all know exists and is a really important property in biology, the property of being a raven, somehow metaphysically in virtue of a law of nature produces this other property that's important to color science Tim, I should put the property of being be black. careful what schematic letters you use yeah yeah and the whole thing is just a complete you know idiocy now if you go into so where, where do I come I go into a physics class right I mean my view it's not so much very saying is it conceptual analysis I wouldn't put it that way my view is this I go into a physics class I learn something they call Newtonian mechanics I might have some questions or some puzzles about it along the way that I would like to have cleared up. But among the questions is not, what the hell do you mean this is a law of, you know, that, that Newton's second law is a law of motion? What did you mean by calling it a law? What made that a law? I don't, just don't have that question, right? It seems to me I understand perfectly well what's being said. It seems to me when I go into the quantum mechanics class and they say, you know, an amazing thing happened. Now we're going to have probabilistic laws and we're going to use probabilities, transitions, you know, chances of transitions. I also did, didn't immediately say, oh my God, I don't understand what you're talking about. Um, and so my approach to this was to be very naive. 
to sort of say, I come out of a physics class with what I take to be, looks like a pretty kind of coherent picture of what's going on physically. Um, are there real problems with being pretty naive about that and where you find parts of that picture that are not, nobody ever attempted to explain them in terms of something else, like no physicist ever tried to explain to me what it was for Newton's second law to be a law by reducing it to something else. Um, then just figure in that picture that's not the kind of thing that does get reduced to something else, right? That's a kind of primitive element of the picture. And let's look at these things and how they work. And I notice, okay, there are these laws. They happen to be typically laws of temporal evolution. They tell you how things evolve through time, which if you start with all ravens are black, you're not going to notice that, right? No time in that. Things like Schrodinger's equation. And I think, okay. And, and, and so more or less all I've been trying to do is articulate what I take to be a very, what David would call flat-footed or naive or straightforward or non-fancy or everyday regular hamburger-eating guy um, cleaned up account of an ontology of the physical world that I get by taking physics as much as I can. Now, I get worried. You know, when I get to quantum mechanics, I have the measurement problem and this and that. Problems come up. I mean, I'm not one, you know, it's not like I worship at the feet of the physics guys because there are problems, but I clear I try to be clear what those problems are and to articulate them and clean them up as best I can. I don't think of that as conceptual analysis. I think that's a so, so I didn't yeah, call it yeah. conceptual okay. analysis. You said I was more worried about conceptual I, I, analysis or something I, I, like I that. I didn't use the word analysis there. Okay. But what I think is that what you didn't do in that paper is to say, okay, on this view, um, what makes this a law? Now, now you're saying, that's a question I don't want to ask. I'll come back to that in a second. But the, you, you do have a view about that that was articulated later uh, a bit, and that is what makes it a law is that there are in the fundamental ontology of the world laws. Right. 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 You, get, you have but a conceptual picture that has primitives that are not... But no conceptual primitives yeah. and metaphysical primitives are not the same thing. Okay, so maybe and, the right thing to this say is... is, what, this a, is in my rereading a few things of yours and thinking about this, Lately, one thought I have, I don't want to get into a side, yeah. I just want to make yeah, this yeah. a remark, is that that distinction is rather important to the way I think about things, and it struck me that it's not so so much in the fort in the way you're thinking about uh, things. Well, let me, maybe, it may, okay, so maybe this, I don't know, there's, I don't think there's anything very contentful to be arguing about here, but maybe the right way to put it is this. Okay, so I... I start out thinking I learned some physics. I sort of had a picture. I try and articulate that picture in maybe a clearer way than it was presented. And you might think of this as sort of looking at conceptual connections <coughs> between things. Mm -hmm. And you find some things definitely get reduced to or defined in terms of or explained mm -hmm. in terms of other things. And at the bottom of this, you, you of course, as there has to be, because there can't but be that, there's some stuff at the bottom where there was no attempt. And that one thing you can do at that point, now you can look at the things at the bottom and get the willies about some of them, right? You can say, oh, at the bottom you've got these laws and you haven't told me what they are. I, that those are spooky or creepy or I don't like them or I want some other account of them. Or you can say, okay, that's all right. Um, everybody needs their primitives. Sort of when I, when I think about the way I'm thinking about this, these seem to be playing a kind of role and they're, they're not reduced to anything else. I will just take it as a possible way the world is that there's something in the world that is that that is that thing and is not made out of anything else and therefore not susceptible of a certain kind of explication because only non-primitive items, right, only composite items are the sorts of things that get explanations by analysis, right? So, 
So, you know, so, so two things. One is, I guess you're, you're calling physics to the side of never asking a question like, so what exactly makes it a law? Or what exactly makes this relation causation? Or what exactly makes this a probability claim? Or what exactly is space? Or whatever, I don't know what would be on the list. And I just don't think that's true. I think there are plenty of examples with people who have you know, got their PhDs in physics ask those kinds of questions. And of course, there is at least some discussion of the, the very Newtonian example that I think you were just mm -hmm. using that about well, what exactly is it a definition? A discussion among physicists as well as philosophers about, about that one. Um, in any case, I do think this reflects something of a difference in temperament that's maybe related a bit to where we started in the discussion here about um, the uh, this sort of imperialistic uh, march of the metaculus. <laughs> and you're, uh, what you're describing it is, you know, regular hamburger kind of guy. Um, See, I'm taking David's hamburgers away from me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, David's the hamburger guy. <laughs> you're the guy with the best cappuccino. <laughs> So the connection between the past and the future is like the connection between the cappuccino machine and the cappuccino. I understand. Okay, but in any case, um, I do think that's interesting. I, just when you said it, really struck a bell with me because I'm just going to embarrass myself to say this, but I was in like in history 101 or something like that, you know, a history class, and this his, historian was talking about. Now, this is a case of history, but he's talking about this causing that, and that causing that, and laws of history. Well, now that, of course. And I started saying and asking, well, what do you mean that, you know, that caused that, and that caused that? And he said, go to the philosophy department. And that's <laughs> not exactly the whole story, but, you know, why did I... You know, it does seem to me, sure, it's right that you won't find Feynman in his lecture notes getting worried about laws. So, yeah, I do think he gets a little concerned about probability um, about that. But, you know, but the idea is, well, <coughs> we know how to use the term. That's good enough for us teaching physics. But that's what they say about the measurement, pro about, um, the measurement problem also. You know, we know how to deal with that. So, uh, so, so there's no that's, so, okay, that's really unfair, but uh, <laughs> I already agree. <laughs> okay, whatever. <laughs> I just wanted to mark something different in temperament, and I don't know whether this differs, makes a difference between me and David also. It never quite came up like this, but I am maybe much fairly quick to start getting puzzled about questions like, um, um, you know, what, what makes for the relationship being a causal relationship I mean, it's it being a law because it's like you know like the sickness of philosophy yeah yeah we're, 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 again I mean I'll just say I think if you take this attitude the attitude I have which just comes from sort of thinking about physics mm -hmm. I don't think of I, I, causation you make judgments about which concepts you think ought to be analyzed or explicated in terms of something else and which shouldn't mm -hmm. For me, and this is like if you, you know, maybe there's nothing much better to read than Goodman when Goodman talks about what is the, why do you have a philosophical problem? Because you have a conscience, right? You have a philosophical conscience, which right. is some judgment about the sorts of things you think require further explication and those that don't. And people will just have different views about this, and therefore they have a different sense of what they think of as philosophical problems. I, I would never take causation to be primitive, right? Or counterfacts. 
right, which are these things that make counterfactuals true. Um, I, you know, so, so, you know, we know someone who does that and says, well, okay, I get down to the bottom. You give me these guys, give me the counterfacts, and I'll give you all. Does he call them counterfacts? Yeah, that's due to me. I think no, no, I think he calls them counterfacts. I think I started calling. I was calling him. <laughs> 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 um, he's, he's, uh, oh, Mark, fine. Um, um, subjunctive facts. So, or uh, fine, subjunctive fact, right? There's a further unanalyzable subjunctive fact that, you know, if I had let go of this, it would have fallen, and I don't somehow give you the truth conditions of that in terms of laws of gravity and stuff like that. So, you know, I, I, I certainly have a series of things that my reaction would be causation. That's something I need to give an account of. And, and, and in fact, causation, for example, is a term where it's not going to worry me too much if the conditions under which it's appropriately used are a bit vague and you trail off into, into situations where you say, call it causal, don't call it causal, I don't care. Right? Nothing really depends on it. Um, this is just a way of characterizing something that is more accurately characterized in a sharper way at a different level in terms of laws and, and, and things like this. Um, in the case of probability, all I said is that I understand the fundamental, I, I think I understand if somebody says there's a fundamental probabilistic law. Right, of, of that, that is, the fundamental law of nature just says there's a certain chance. If you think of laws of nature as prescribing how these states evolve in time. They can do so deterministically or they could do so probabilistically. That's not to say that that's the only way to think about probability. And of course, you, you think if you're, if you're tossing dice and even if the fundamental laws of physics are deterministic, and so there's no, no probability at that level, at the level of fundamental dynamical law, we want an explanation why various probabilistic notions are perfectly appropriate to describe dice. That's something we've been doing now. So it's not a blanket thing about wherever the word probability comes, I don't e either do or don't think it requires a person. Yeah. No, of course, I didn't mean to, to suggest that. I was rather just pointing at this interesting fact that some, there's some difference in terms of where one might think, gee, I would really want an right. account of that. Right. Um, and um, good. Uh, at one point, though, just back to where we were before, which maybe I didn't say, but I meant to earlier, on just a Lewis account, just should get it on the table. Everyone can see that Lewis's account of probability then um, applies to, his uh, best systems account, applies when the dynamics are deterministic or when the dynamics are indeterministic, because it might be that having a probability distribution over uh, the state of the world at some particular time, initial conditions or whatever, um, could be part of a really um, uh, simple, uh, informative theory about the world. Um, and so this makes, on Lewis's account, it, um, there's no big important metaphysical difference between the probabilities that occur in uh, dynamical laws and the probabilities that occur um, in, in the, laws of the, uh, the laws of deterministic. It's, you might see this as an objectionable feature of Lewis's view, or you might see it as a good feature of Lewis's um, view. Okay. So back to where I was thinking a little while ago. So I was looking at, thinking about Tim's view about laws, and it obviously contrasts um, with Lewis's, and it was you know, designed for, for serious examples of laws of physics, not like Armstrong's view, and was much clearer, it seemed, about what the underlying metaphysics is. It's, as I 
think I'm characterizing the way that Tim would agree with. There are these elements of ontology, um, laws, and laws um, uh, do something to the state, and they do it in a particular direction of time. Uh, well, Tim had this other paper on time passing, in which I don't think there's much discussion of the role of time passing in laws, if I remember. So I don't know what Tim had in mind from the very beginning in this discussion, but when I read these, I remember he and I talking once about this little detail, I thought these two views fit together really, in a really cool way, and in a way that made Tim's view, uh, you know, sort of more a more interesting, sophisticated, non-Yumian view than what the other things that were on the table then. And it also struck me that the Yumian view fit together with the constructivist scientific account of the direction of time that David has been pursuing here also in a really cool, interesting <coughs> way. So these two go together as packages. Not that you couldn't hold one of them without the other. They're not a lot, literally logical connections. But they, um, they go together really nicely. So here's how, in my view, um, the Mentaculus account uh, which you haven't really developed as, a, as an account of the direction of time yet, right? That really hasn't right. been discussed. Right. Okay. Talk about but you that talk that about it for the, right. for the second law, though, yes. that you have. Yes, okay. right. So, um, but, you know, uh, you, I know this is going to be discussed a lot here, and there's not going to be time to get into it here. But um, uh, if you um, uh, take the Metaculus view, and then you you think there's this probability distribution or maybe family of probability distributions and um, uh, you think that you can use that to not only ground the second law for the universe as a whole but for systems that become sort of quasi-isolated within the system so that what its interaction, the system's interaction with, the, with other things are not going to be important and explain why it is that, you know, um, the second law uh, is, is realized in... Uh, in, in ice cubes and in buckets of warm water and, and other places. And you also think that you could provide accounts of why it is that um, we can influence the, the, um, the, the future to a limited extent but not the past. Something that David has very, very detailed and a big story to tell about. And also think why we can know about the past, and not just a lot more, but in, in ways that are different from what we can know about the future. And think that this probability distribution might be just the, the ticket for giving uh, a kind of anal account, analysis is the word, word I want to use here, but a, a, a probabilistic surrogate, so to speak, for causation. Then you might think, wow, that's really great. The metaculus is is really wonderful. But then you start wondering, what are these probabilities that occur within the mentaculus? Um, and uh, if, putting aside the discussion that you had of typicality last time for a second, I have a question about it in a minute, but you might say, gee, how should we think about probabilities if the fundamental laws are deterministic then? Well, this sort of Lewisian view then looks like it's just the ticket <laughs> for that, right? Um, so these two views fit together very, very nicely. Um, that the Luisian account of laws and probability fit in well with the Mentaculus account of um, uh, the uh, direction of time, of time's arrows. So that's, that's the big ambitious project. <clears throat> 
that's being contrasted uh, in, a, in a non-invidious way with Tim's view in which the laws are these elements of ontology and there's going to be some other account of the direction of time. Well, if you look at Tim's view, it looks like he is really positing a, a metaphysically fundamental direction of time that is going to, uh, here would be a way to put it, I mean this just metaphorically for the moment, if you want to do better, that it's the arrows of time are telling, uh, <clears throat> the fundamental arrow of time are telling the laws in which direction to operate. So I think Tim would accept, as far as reality is concerned, is a sort of uh, four-dimensionalist view, maybe the space-time is some complicated uh, space-time. But um, within it, there's maybe a, a, a structure, maybe a light cone structure or, or whatever, and at each point of space-time, there's an, an, you know, that we can imagine an arrow saying, this way forward, laws. Um, and that's the direction in which the laws operate to produce. So you can see how the content, the account of laws, and, and this kind of direction, fundamental direction of time, fit together um, really well. Now the question is, how is that going to fit in with the Mentaculous account? One thing is that the Mentaculous account just might not work out. It might not pan out. Maybe all the attempts to explain why it is that we can affect the future but not the past, or, or ground causal claims of the Mentaculous probabilities, or show how these probabilities are just what's needed when giving accounts of probabilities that occur in the special sciences. Maybe they're not going to work out. The details are surely far from being done. Um, in which case, you know, <laughs> that account isn't, you know, not that account. There's a question about exactly how Tim's account it will work here. How will it fit? I mean, Tim, Tim accepts that there's a um, low entropy condition, and that low entropy condition is going to play a role in why it is that the second law uh, holds. He also accepts that there will be is something that plays the role of the probability distribution. I'm uh, maybe I'm going too far off into too many different things here, but I'm not clear to me exactly how that's going to fit in here. It seems as though it's not the the idea here is that um, uh, this there's a family of measures such that it gives measure one, given the the dynamics of our world, to various properties like melting if your ice No, it gives time it. measure for finite cases, not, not measure one. Yeah, I was going to finish that. <laughs> 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 I'm just trying to be <laughs> Very high measure in the finite case. Infinite. Isn't, it, isn't the idea that it'll be in, in one in the... Yeah, the, 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 the idea was just to, again, the, the, you're trying to recast what ultimately... I would like to describe, and this is just following Shelley, the basic, the basic distinction is not one well described by a measure, but just by this distinction of certain sets being big, very big, and other ones very tiny. Mm -hmm. um, and that there are various behaviors that will occur. Um, Tim, can I just big and tiny don't mean big and tiny. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there <laughs> is, I mean, this is something you don't disagree with, but for some reason, you're not mentioning when you say this. There are lots of well-defined mathematical measures. There are very, a very large set of well-defined mathematical measures that we could put, say, on phase space, okay? 
It's not the case that according to all of those measures, the sets you're calling big are big, Correct. and the sets you're calling small are small. Yes. Um, um, the, the sense is that on any measure, you know, go back to your example about the Sahara yes. or, or something like that, on any measure that you think that 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 uh, any well, measure except those that you that you think everybody would think of as crazy, um, these sets come out big. Or, or, or on any way of making such a judgment. I mean, again, let me just say no, without reading the word mathematically well-defined ways of making such a judgment. No, no, no. But, but I'm, I'm saying I'm it's sure. the not crazy part that's doing. Oh, that. okay, okay, good. Right. good, good on good. any non-crazy part of making judgments of big and small, right? Which which I might be able to do without having anything as finely detailed as a measure around. Right. On any non of course I need a distinction between crazy and non crazy right. or right. you know motivated and completely unmotivated right. or something like that. That because there are bad ways of doing it. Right. Formally there are bad ways of doing it. So we agree about that. All the point I'm making is it's not clear to me for the purposes I'm trying to use this for, I need something as mathematically detailed as a measure. I do need this distinction yeah, between reasonable and unreasonable. You don't need that because a whole family of measures will work. Right. But um, but big and small, of course, shouldn't gain any. Um, uh, you know, if we, if we were talking about big and small sets, we might sort of uh, think of some principle of indifference or something like that relative to big and small, which will lead us to assign probabilities in a way that's connected to subject to credence. Um, here we're not. We shouldn't be encouraged to do that. I think, because April, as far as big is concerned, well, the sets that are small have just as many elements of the set that are big. Right. That would be a bad way to make the judgment. Right. Cardinality. Okay. Okay. By cardinality. So, but 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 big and small usually mean cardinality. Um, not in an infinite. Not in a space with an infinite number. Of, not not in a set, infinite sets. It doesn't. Tim, here's the here's the well the measures there are measures on sets and of course sets with different with the same cardinality can have different measures relative to to a certain measure. I mean here's the set of measures. The, the fact that cardinality is not a good way to do it yeah. cuts both ways. That's sort of the point. The the I mean I'm, this isn't this probably isn't worth this much time because I don't think it's something we disagree about. But maybe it's just a question of presentation. Look. It's an important sort of, you know, um, um, startling result of measure theory, the fundamental result in a way, that if you ask, what's the natural extension of counting, okay? What's the natural extension of the way we determine the size of finite sets to the case of continuously infinite sets? The startling answer is there is no unique natural extension. Okay, for all of the criteria that we we feel we're able, for all the sharply defined criteria that we feel we're able to write down that characterizes the way we determine the sizes of sets in the finite case, there are there, there's an enormous collection of ways of applying that to the continuously infinite case, all of which satisfy all the criteria we can think of to write down for the finite case. Okay. Well, so or, that there's or, a real none of the criteria we can actually more accurate thing. I'm not sure what you have in mind. The more accurate thing is that none of them satisfy the criteria that we have. What, in other words, I would have thought you might say that is, for all the ways if there's a one-to-one -one correspondence, you might have thought then right. I think then they ought, they ought to be the same size. Right, 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 right. One thing's a subset good, good, of another. The subset good. ought to be smaller. Good, right? good, 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 good. <laughs> let's let, let's put it this way: there is no unique extension to the to the continuously infinite case. Sure, that's that's a sort of 
a really important fact about measure theory. There well, just me- cardinality and measure theory aren't in competition that way. You need a lot more structure to talk about measures mm-hmm. sets to talk about measures of the, the sets, right? So, you're not just another thing. The notion of cardinality applies to any set. Right. So, so the, the deal is, if somebody, it, 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 it is a psychological fact that's not in dispute about what people would consider crazy ways to do it and what people right. would consider non-crazy ways to do it. The question is, is that, are, are those facts um, about what people would consider crazy and what people not, would not consider crazy the sorts of things that can tell us where we ought to stop pressing for further explanation, that is, do they have that kind of status, or are they themselves the sorts of psychological behaviors of human beings which we would seek to explain in terms of something deeper, like the mentaculus, or like sets, you know, or, or like sets, you know, modified versions of the mentaculus, which involve sets of probability distributions, and so on and mm-hmm. so forth. That's what the dispute is about. If you, if, if you know, at this particular juncture. Well, anyway, I, I was imagining that this is where this was going. Is having up on the board, which you got to do this next time. So, Tim's, you know, I guess, uh, I guess this is only fair. Tim's on one side, and David and me are on the other side. <laughs> and. Um, and um, Assuming that the mentaculus account kind of pans out in the sense that there are these, uh, it pans out in our terms, kinds of explanations of, uh, of um, the, the second law and the, uh, why the, the, um, we have limited control over the future but not the past and blah, 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 blah. The, all of that will involve the physics, which you'll, I guess, accept. <coughs> Because they'll be, yeah. you know, okay. Yeah, I guess. It's, so. Right. So, you know, the past hypothesis you accept. Um, the, that there is this Luisian probability, because that also will have to pan out as a good summary of our world. That should accept. Although maybe it would be modified to say that, look, you get uh, informative, simple descriptions with a, a family of. Right, set of probabilities. That, right. Okay, so that might, right, so that it, it's not as committal a view as you might have not liked in the first place. So where will the difference come down to? It will come down to, you will think that the the notion of law that is being employed in the mentaculous view is just not the right notion of law. Um, It doesn't fit in with physics in the right way. It's certainly a different, I mean, right is a little... It's certainly a different view of law and, and one that doesn't afford certain kinds of explanations or underwrite certain kinds of explanations. Right. right. But when you say that underwrite certain explanations, I need to put a little quote around explanation to make that clearer. As far as explanations of a, a, a Hempelian type explanation, it'll underwrite them just as your account will. Sure. Uh, okay. Where it won't is there won't be these elements of ontology which back up that um, explanation, because oh. there'll be no elements of ontology taking a state and producing um, subsequent states in a particular but direction. Wait, um, the problem is that Hempel's account of explanation just is a crummy account of explanation. So if you can underwrite well, Hempelian DNA explanations, I don't care. All I mean by lots of those are not explanations in anybody's sense. Just a second. So that's right. <laughs> that's right. That you don't get good explanations be- because of it not um, having the, the direction of causation in it. 
So you're going to have to add that into, into the account. So the question is whether the Metaculous account will be able to get that as an account of explanation. Would, there'll be some story also about, I think, about how the, the, the importance of the direction of time isn't, it doesn't play the metaphysically fundamental role. This is where we were. Mm -hmm. The very beginning of the discussion today about the possibility of there being a future um, uh, hypothesis. Right. Okay. Because on the Mentaculous view, as far as metaphysics is concerned, there could have been. It's just a fact right. about our world that there's not. So it's right that there's a big dose of what might be called Oh, I'm not sure. Eliminativism isn't quite the right world, but kind of a kind of revisionism of our ordinary ways of thinking about yeah. things that will go along with the mentaculous. Now we're going to make it the Albert Lewis view because of the way these fit together. They, they, there will be a, a, a certain amount of revisionism because there'll be an explanation, but it'll be from the point of view of this view, a kind of scientific explanation about why it is that we have certain views that we have about things. No surprise about that. There are a lot of cases in the history of science where one explains why it is that people, you know, somebody points out, you know, that you're moving now, you're moving at an incredibly, you know, uh, a fast velocity, why it is that it doesn't seem that you're moving. Uh, I'm not saying that that comparison is totally fair right. to this right. discussion, but just as sort of spotted. So, so you're right, of course. I mean, this is in response because you weren't very charitable about my saying <laughs> that you'll have the explanations. What I mean is you'll have law, um, law explanations within the Mentaculous account, as in your account. Um, now you want an account of why it is that we take explanations from something in the past to the future as in, in, as real explanations, whereas the other direction not. And the question will be whether the mentaculous can come up with an account of that. And the claim is, yes, it can, because it can come up with an account of the distinction between past and future, grounded in the past hypothesis, and then an account of why it is that it's important to us to give explanations going in one direction, these laws of things going in one direction, not in the other direction, and that'll be connected to how we think about causation and manipulation. And right, so there, I mean, at least we can agree a certain appeal to a pragmatic, I don't know what to call it, what's important to us just occurred in your... Yes, absolutely. That, that nowhere occurs in anything I'm going to do. I'm not saying anything about what's important to us or unimportant to us. I'm going to talk about what there is, what the physical world is like, and the physical world operating as well. Independently of whether we're this around or we're at a level of what's fundamental, this will have that view too. That it won't be important to us. What's what's fundamental? Right, right. It's just a disagreement. Right. About so, what's but, but this is but this is just to highlight right. the sense that you said it's revisionary. Right, right. And and I think it's fair to say, and this is where I was the hamburger guy. Um, <laughs> I didn't want to be that revisionary. Right. I wanted to see whether a much less revisionary. First of all, whether much is there are there any real objections to a much hey, less remember, revisionary? Uh, remember picture. that big uh, E. coli scare about hamburger. <laughs> 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 Um, you know, of course, lots of philosophers, and this is, I mean, we didn't have this, this paper on the direction of time, I can put it in. You know, there were a bunch of philosophers who thought they had arguments, presented themselves as having arguments for the incoherence of the view that, for example, time just passes, that this is a, this is a fundamental physical fact about the nature of time. It has this asymmetry. They thought that they actually could show this was a self-contradictory view or something like that, right? Okay, then you have to give it up. Um, 
you know, a lot of this is just to say that I didn't see any real self-contradiction in trying to why I, why I thought those arguments were not good. Um, and, and not particularly wanting to be revisionary about time. But that's not any difference among us here. That's not, no, no. So right. given the understanding that what you mean by that is that there's just a fundamental direction in time. Right. But, you know, uh, and, and you can talk about time passing and so on. It's just dressing this up. However, if your view is it's obvious that there is this fundamental, fundamental direction, not that there's a direction time, that's obvious. It's obvious to me too. Um, but that it's fundamental in the sense of being metaphysically fundamental. I don't think anything is about fundamentality is obvious to, to to me or to anybody else. So I so so if you're using the terminology of time passing and then get it to support the existence of these arrows, that I think would be uh, not right. Um, that is, say, arrows as these fundamental things. If you're using it to support the phenomena of time passing, which includes things like that we can control the future to a certain extent, but not the past, and blah, 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 then of course I agree. Now what we're doing is taking all of that as an object for scientific explanations in terms of the mentaculous. If, in fact, you end up accepting those explanations, but put beside the worry that we, the dispute we have over explanation for just one second, then one is going to wor wonder, well, okay, no, for less than a second, one's going to wonder where do these arrows actually come in? Do they come in at the point of detailed explaining why it is that we can um, do make a little change or we think we can affect the future a bit but not the past? Or do they just come in rather where I think they do, just in a, a bedrock thing, look, you don't really have lawful explanation of anything unless you have these arrows. That's where I think you, you need to put put the arrows in. I yeah I, I guess I don't see those as the only two options, and I also yeah, don't so see the options option of, of, of of I mean to go back you say do I think the passage of time is just obvious? I think it's. Let me make it make, let me make an analogy here, which which you'll also see. I mean some of you will see as well. I, I, I'm trying to come up with a physical picture of the world. I have to start with something, right? I have to, and, 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 and what I can't start with, the empiricist thought I could start with was a description of my sense experience. Okay, that's not going to work. I start off with a kind of proto-physical description of the world. For example, I say, oh, look, there's a three-dimensional space and there are objects in it and various shapes and they move around in certain ways. And, and then I can notice facts about how they move around and then I can ask, gee, can I come up with a, an account of why they move around this way rather than that way, blah, blah, blah. Um, what is the status of that original posit in terms of space, that there's a three-dimensional space with objects in it that move around? Uh, it's not that I think you couldn't possibly imagine a physics that denies that. You could. Um, it's not that I think that... It, it, it is, in a certain sense, an obvious posit to begin with, right? An obvious... What we take to be an obvious fact about the world. A fairly unproblematic one that we start from, because that's the one... What's the fact? Is, it fa is the fact that... There's a three-dimensional space with objects in it that moves Does that mean there's three... There's the relations among uh, objects that are three-dimensional, that there, there are relations among objects so that uh, objects are certain distances from each other such that it, you end up with a, a three-dimensional... Uh, no, that, 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 that's much too fancy. So three dimensions. But, so the two questions about it is I'm not exactly sure what that is that you're claiming is obvious. 
But, you know, in some sense I agree, it's obvious that there's two-dimensional space. But the part of it that I really want to press a bit is, is it obvious that it's fundamental? Right. I'm, I'm, what I'm, I, I, I'm not going to say it's obvious that it's fundamental. What I said is this is an obvious place to begin with my postulations. Right. I think everybody would agree with that. It is, it is possible to imagine a physics in which this turns out not to be fundamental. Right. But it's still, but, it exists but not fundamental. It, it is possible to imagine such a physics. David's tried to articulate a way in which that could be true. But you said something different at first. You said it's, it's possible to imagine a physics in which it's not true. In other words, there isn't a three-dimensional space. Um, I guess it's possible to imagine physics like that, too. But, but actually, what we're talking about here is it's possible to imagine physics where it's not fundamental. Yeah, I, I'm not, yeah, I wasn't making a distinction there. I take it in, in the way I was using true in David's in the, in the, in the marvelous point picture, it just wouldn't be true that there's a three-dimensional space. Oh. Okay? It I might be I a convenient way to talk about things as if there were, but there isn't one. I wouldn't put it that way. Okay. Well, just put it a different way. I say it's true that there's a three-dimensional space, just that it's true if, the, if this thing panned out. It's true I, that there's a room in which people I, are I sitting. I just don't, I, I wouldn't I put it that way. I mean, we're just, uh, for people who don't know, we're discussing a theory in which, as I would put it, or, or as Barry would agree, it's a physical picture in which fundamentally there's a very, very, very high-dimensional space, almost in, uh, inarticulably high-dimensional space in which there's a single particle that moves around in accordance with a certain law and a wave function on it. And the way I describe it is if you accept that as a physical picture, then the right thing to say is that there really isn't a three-dimensional space. Barry wants to say there really is. Okay, I mean, this is... Yeah, it's in the same way like if you express the, the view that yeah. things are made up of atoms, you'd say, well, that doesn't mean that we're saying that there aren't people in rocks and chairs. Yeah, I don't think it's at all similar. Okay. Right. <laughs> I, think, I think that's not in the least bit similar. Okay. Um, you're supposed to be chairing another movie. Oh, okay. Oh, you're right. Okay. <laughs> um, but anyway, so let me just finish the point. The, 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 these kinds of postulates are reasonable places to begin, and I want reasons to be pushed off them. That's not to say you can't have a physics that postulates something else and then tries to explain why you would have the impression that there are these things, and that's, and, and so on. But the, the naive approach, as I have it, is that it seems to me there's some kind of natural starting places, and I just want to see, do I really run into problems with I'm not going to be at any, just one very quick last word. I think that, I hope this was useful to people who are here, mainly, which it, it, it seems to me that I succeeded at one thing I wanted to do, though not quite the way, and that is bring out some of the differences, in, the methodological differences, yeah. between the two, um, and just yeah. let me let me just uh, say, remind everybody: do take do, do read the the two papers we post this time because because at, at least one of them, that is the one I'm going to post, is much too long to go over in detail. So you'll need to have some background, which I'll just sketchily remind you of, and I hope then people will want to raise questions about it. If you came to abandon your your view of it. Direction on fundamental. Would you then agree with the Humean view of law? I don't know why that. Would <laughs> well, the, I'm sorry. What was uh, the question was: If Tim abandoned the idea, it's a very hard question you're asking, right? What, what's the question? Which words? It's a jump. It depends if, on the fact. Can I hear the question? <laughs> I can tell you. How abandoned? 
if I didn't believe in the direction of time, yeah. so I couldn't think of the laws yeah. as being connected with the fundamental yeah. direction of time, yeah. would, I, would I fall all the way into the pit of humanism, or would I find some other wedge right. to, to right. hang on to, right. Right, right. which, which right. was a non-Humean wedge, right. but right. you just right. didn't have that, right. and that's hard, right. hard to counterfactual when you evaluate. <laughs> <laughs>